You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's good to see y'all. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name's Jake, and I'm a, a pastor here at Midtown Church. And so glad that you're joining us this morning, especially if this is your first time with us, let me give you a little context of what we're doing. Uh, it's probably helpful to know that we're in a, a sermon series right now in uh, the book of Ephesians, which was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus around 62 AD. And we're studying uh, this letter because in it, Paul, through the inspiration of God, highlights the life-changing ramifications of the gospel. When we say gospel, what we mean is the good news of Jesus. And last week, we came to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, where Paul makes the point that Jesus didn't just die to reconcile us to God, as amazing as that is, but he also died to reconcile us to one another. And this morning, instead of moving into Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to camp out in that same passage again, because it's election season. And I'm not sure if uh, you feel this, maybe it's just me, but it seems like election season has the tendency to divide people. Have y'all, have y'all picked up on that? And given that that's true, what Jesus accomplished on the cross has the power to bring peace. If Jesus, what Jesus accomplished on the cross has power to bring peace between one another, then it seems like the gospel should be good news in this politically charged season. And so this morning, we're going to look at that passage again to see, at least in part, the impact the gospel has on politics, or specifically, how the gospel has the power to truly make peace and unify people of different political parties or persuasions. Okay, now, I want you to know, I hate talking about politics. So this is way out of my comfort zone. And I also want you to know that I do not believe that it is my role to tell you how to vote. And so uh, just to state it clearly from the onset this morning, I will not be making a case for one candidate or platform over another. Instead, what I'm hoping to do is to help us see that the gospel of Jesus is powerful enough to create unity amongst diversity, including political diversity. Now, I recognize uh, that in this cultural moment, that might sound idealistic. For in America now, perhaps more now than ever, uh, (laughs) we have taken to vilifying people across the aisle attaching moral and character judgments to their political positions or parties. And sadly, this is often found and even propagated within the American church, where for decades and decades, the prominent message of cultural Christianity, not biblical Christianity, but cultural Christianity has been this. You cannot truly be a Christian and vote Democrat. Now, ironically, I've actually begun hearing from some Christians in Austin who say the exact opposite of that. They would say, you cannot be a Christian and vote Republican. 
And when I hear statements like that, it, it makes, it makes a, a quote by Cameron Triggs really resonate with me where he says this. He says, I've seen a troubling trend toward elevating the ballot booth to a sort of baptism, a religious litmus test that either confirms or denies our faith. See, friends, politics can divide. And in some people's eyes, it can even divide between who's really a true Jesus follower and who's not. And as a result, politics can make it very difficult to experience and enjoy the deep unity in the church that Jesus died to achieve. Instead, we often either settle for trying to maintain a veneer of unity by avoiding talking about politics with one another, or we only talk to people we know who will agree with us. But friends, the gospel is powerful enough to bring unity amongst even political diversity. For it enables us and it resources us with what we need to listen to and learn from and still be one with one another, even if we disagree. And I absolutely know that this is true. For if the gospel of Jesus could unify Jews and Gentiles, it can absolutely unify Democrats and Republicans. See, last week we began looking at this passage, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. And I mentioned there that the, the, of the, the deep division that existed between Jews and Gentiles. For Paul, you know, begins this passage by reminding the Gentiles how the Jews viewed them, saying this, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by the, those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ and excluded from citizenship in Israel. Like they would have nothing to do with you. Foreigners to the covenants of promises without hope, in their eyes, without God in the world. You see, the Jews and the Gentiles held radically different perspectives and lived completely different kind of lives from each other. And as a result, judgment and condemnation and deep division ensued. For example, to quote Pastor Professor William Barclay, he says this, the Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of source need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with the Gentile was equivalent to death. Now, I know that the vitriol between uh, Democrats and Republicans can get pretty intense, but thankfully it has not risen to a Jew and Gentile level yet, right? See, in the, in the first century, no one would have ever dared to hope that Jews and Gentiles would be unified. For the division ran deep, and it had been around for ages. But now, Paul writes, In Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Or put another way, that Jesus destroyed the dividing wall by setting aside the standards that we use to measure, that we have to measure up to or align with perfectly in order to be acceptable. Acceptable to God, acceptable to one another. Jesus did away with that in his body. And why did he do this? Paul continues. His purpose, Jesus' purpose, was to create himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in his body, talking about Jesus' body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached to you who were far away, and he preached to, the, to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. And what was the result of this? Well, Paul says in verse 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. So what was the result? We'll put it another way. The church was the result. Where for the first time in all of history, Jews and Gentiles were united together and enjoyed deep friendships and peaceful community, eating together, serving each other, and worshiping God together. And hear this, friends. That didn't happen because the Gentiles decided to become Jews or the Jews decided to become Gentiles. In fact, if you read through the book of Acts, you see that was a huge point of discussion within factions of the early church, where some Jews in the church believed that Gentiles had to follow the dietary laws and they had to get a certain, the men had to get a certain surgery in order to truly belong to the church. But that belief was condemned as a false gospel. Gentiles did not have to become Jews in order to belong to Christ. For in Christ, one new humanity was formed out of the two. For the gospel of Jesus gifted them with something even more defining than what had previously defined them and even more unifying than what had previously divided them. Which is why in the church, there were still Gentiles and there were still Jews, but they were united in Christ. See, the gospel created unity amongst diversity. Unity that did not entail or require uniformity. Now, unity that insists on uniformity is always easier. It's easier because you get to exclude anyone who doesn't agree with you or doesn't do the things the same way you do them or who doesn't vote the way that you vote. So that's easier. You just get to write them off. Diversity is always messier, but the gospel is powerful enough to unify diverse people. And if we are going to be a church family that reflects the gospel, then that means we must be a church that displays the unity the gospel brings 
and the diversity that the gospel allows. And as we talked about last week, that includes racial diversity, and it also includes political diversity. And so with the remaining time I have, I want to drill down on this to help us grasp, at least in part, why the gospel creates unity amongst diversity, and then what that actually looks like, and how the gospel cultivates that kind of unity. All right, so first, let's, let's begin with this. Why does the gospel create unity amongst diversity? For you see, I ask this because God could have set things up in a way where Gentiles had to become Jews before they could become Christians, but he didn't require that. And if you love bacon, you should be really happy about that. But why didn't he require that? I mean, it would have been in some ways easier. It wouldn't have been as messy. Why did he make room for diversity? Well, I think that there are many reasons why, but let me just mention three that are relevant to today's topic. The first is this. It's because God himself is unified and diverse. You ever thought about that? See, the triune God is one God, but three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And as a result, God is glorified, like he is made known when his people reflect unity amongst diversity, for that reflects his very nature. I think this is part of the reason why when we're given a glimpse into the the future that awaits us in heaven, we're told that there will be people there from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That's Revelation 7 verse 9. The, The most diverse group ever gathered will be gathered around the throne of Jesus worshiping him. Why is that? It's because our triune God is honored when diverse people are united around him for it reflects his nature. Second reason why the gospel creates unity but not uniformity is because it displays the gospel's power, which is literally called the power of God in Romans 1 verse 16. Jonathan Lehman in his book, Loving Church Members with Different Politics, has this quote, I think is so powerful. He says, there's been nothing like the church in the history of the world. Every other nation has been united either by powerful men with swords or by family relations, including ancient Israel. Yet now a new nation exists, held together by neither sword nor family, but only by the gospel. Indeed, it's a nation that doesn't presently possess a land. It's like God wanted the world to see what he alone could do. So he took a bunch of natural enemies, saved them by his son's blood and his spirit's power, and created a united and peace-sharing people. And that, in the church, and its diversity, displays gospel's power. Third reason, final reason I'll mention for why the gospel creates unity amongst diversity is that the gospel removes obstacles that can make it harder for people to turn to Jesus. For example, if being a Christian means that you also have to be a Republican, then to turn to Christ also means you must align with a specific political party, which would make, which which would create a huge obstacle for many in turning to Jesus. But thanks to Jesus, 
who set aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, that is not a requirement. And to advocate that it is a requirement is to advocate for a false gospel. And read the book of Galatians. For the true gospel is that Jesus has removed any extra requirements, for it is not by works that we are saved, but by his grace alone, which makes it possible for anyone to come to him. So for this reason, and more, let's not fall for the mistaken notion that political uniformity is a requirement of being united with Christ and united with one another. But all this kind of begs the question, right? What does this unity amongst diversity really look like? I mean, especially regarding politics. And the truth is, (laughs) I could uh, spend hours on this point, but I promise you I won't, all right? So. Rest, rest assured. Let me just point out two ways, okay? So here, here's the question. Let me frame it this way. In what ways does the gospel create unity amongst political diversity? Now, friends, one way it does that is that it unifies our aim, but it allows for diversity in our wise application or our wise action. And here's what I mean. If you remember, we kicked off this fall by looking at John uh, chapter 13, verse 34, where Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, Jesus says, so you must love one another. Meaning that Jesus's love for us displayed most clearly through the gospel is to inform and direct how we live, that we are to live lives of love, including loving God loving our neighbors and loving each other. And so having been loved by Jesus, we're united in that aim. As he said, as I loved you, you must love one another. And one of the ways we love people is through our vote and our political actions. For politics matter. And the huge reason why they matter is because politics inform policies that ultimately impact people. When I read the Bible, it's emphatically clear that people matter to God, including, and especially, we talked about this in the summer, people who are marginalized and oppressed and forgotten and on the fringes of our larger society. Now, government is not the solution for all of society's ills, but because it does impact people, it is an avenue by which we love others. And in light of the gospel, that is our unified aim in Christ. However, what policies will actually love and serve people best is most often a matter of wisdom. For example, we are clearly called to love and care for the poor. But what is the best way to do that? Pastor and author Tim Keller has noted There are many possible ways to help the poor. Should we shrink the government and let private capital markets allocate resources or should we expand the government and make the state more power, give the state more power to redistribute wealth or is the right path? One of the many possibilities in between. See, that's all a matter of wisdom. And so though our aim remains the same, our personal application of that aim may differ resulting in diversity. Or to get really controversial here, since I've already waded into this topic, 
Let's take the lightning rod issue of abortion. The sense abortion ends the life of arguably the most vulnerable person in our society, the unborn child. The gospel where Jesus saved us when we had no chance of saving ourselves unifies our aim in reducing the amount of abortions that take place in our nation. But what's the best way to do that? Well, that too is a matter of wisdom. And some of us may believe that the best way to do that is by voting in a way that may potentially lead to the overturning of Roe v. Wade and or voting in a way that will reduce the amount of federal funding that goes to places like Planned Parenthood and the like. But on the other hand, some of us may reason that because all life is important, they will vote in a way that believe, they believe best serves people from womb to tomb, as the saying goes. Believing the best way to reduce the number of abortions is to provide more support programs for the poor. For our studies have shown single women are more likely to be poor, and single women account for 86% of all abortions. So again, some of us may reason that the best way to actually reduce abortions would be uh, to enhance the financial and health safety net for working women. Though again, we would have to use wisdom to discern what programs will best provide that financial and health safety nets. Here's the point. The gospel unifies our aim, directing us to love others as Jesus has loved us. Therefore, we are to vote with that unified aim in mind. But what policies and what politicians we believe will accomplish that aim best is a matter of wisdom. And the unity the gospel provides is powerful enough for us to exercise wisdom and reach diverse conclusions and still be one. It unifies our aim, but it allows diversity and wise application. And so when we talk about politics with one another, we can begin from this place of unity. We can say, okay, in light of how we've been loved by Jesus, how can we vote in a way that best loves the people within our nation? What policies or politicians do you think will lead to people being loved and served well? And in the end, if you end up disagreeing, you're still in agreement regarding what you're both trying to accomplish. And then you can go and cancel each other's vote. Now that's still that from Sean's. That's a Sean joke, but just playing with that. Okay. Ooh, this is, this is heavy stuff. Are you thinking about this? Now, um, another way the gospel creates unity amongst political diversity is that it unifies our ultimate allegiance, but it allows for diversity in our temporal affiliations. For when we are united in Christ through faith in the gospel, uh, we become citizens of heaven, as Philippians 3, verse 20 says. And our ultimate allegiance is, is now to the kingdom of God, which means in Christ we cannot be first and foremost party people. And I'm not talking about your freshman year in college. You can't be first and foremost party people because Jesus has reconciled us to God. And we are now citizens of his kingdom called, as Jesus says in Matthew 6.33, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And the truth is, friends, none of our political parties align perfectly with the kingdom of God. 
which means the Church of Jesus will never fit comfortably with any political party. For example, the quote Paul Tripp, he says this, if you read the social justice calls in the Bible, passages like Micah 6, 6 through 8, or the passages where we're called to defend the fatherless and widows, that sounds more like the energy that would be in the Democratic Party. On the other hand, if you hear the massive amounts of calls in Scripture to personal responsibility and, biblical, and a biblical sex ethic, that sounds more like the themes of the Republican Party. And you can't take the whole of what the gospel says about how we should live and place that comfortably in the political philosophy of any party. So what do we do with that? Well, that doesn't mean that we should withdraw from politics or not affiliate with any party. Why? Because as citizens of God's kingdom, we are not called to withdraw from the world, but to influence it from within. And since neither party perfectly aligns with God's kingdom, there is freedom to, to discern which party you will affiliate with. But within that party, your allegiance remains ultimately to the greater kingdom, the kingdom of God. And so that will lead you to be a prophetic voice within your political affiliations, seeking greater alignment to God's kingdom from within your party. And though in our church, we may do this for different parties, we remain united in our ultimate allegiance and aim. Now, a lot more could be said here, but hopefully those two examples will give you at least a taste, a picture of the ways the gospel creates unity amongst political diversity. It unifies our aim, but allows for diversity of application, and it unifies our ultimate allegiance allows for diversity within our temporal affiliations. But here's the thing. In order for us on a personal level to be able to be enabled to live out this unity without demanding uniformity, we need the gospel to do its heart-changing work within our lives. For the gospel must change us on a heart level if we, as a politically diverse church, are to really enjoy peace and unity with one another. So let me pose one more question for us. And that is, how does the gospel create people who can be unified while being politically diverse? And the first answer to this is that the, it's, it's because the gospel makes us humble, gracious, and loving. For simply put, our need for the gospel reminds us that we are not perfect. The reason we needed Jesus to die for us is because our actions are not perfect, our views are not perfect, our wisdom is not perfect. We all desperately needed grace. And when we realize that, it will help us be humble and gracious, for we've been given grace and we give grace. In addition, the gospel makes us loving. For as I already mentioned, it's the love of Jesus that compels us to love others, moving us to love others even when we think their views might be wrong. I love how the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, when he says, We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. And friends, when it comes to politics, we all have knowledge. But when we let our knowledge puff us up and put others down, 
we undermine unity. But on the other hand, love builds up. And as we are mindful of how we have been loved by Christ, we are then moved to love even when we disagree. In addition to all that, the gospel also gives us a greater hope than politics. For the gospel captures the radical lengths that God will go to ultimately make everything right. And so the gospel fills us with hope because it's proof that God is at work in our world. And so no matter who becomes president, Jesus remains king. And as a result, no matter what happens, we still have reason to be full of hope. Michael Weir, author of the book, Reclaiming Hope, Lessons Learned in the Obama White House about the future of faith in America. He was part of uh, Obama's uh, staff. He says this, politics is causing great spiritual harm. And a big reason for that is people are going to politics to have their inner needs met. Politics does a poor job of meeting inner needs, but politicians will suggest they can do it if it will get them votes. But friends, we have a much greater hope than politicians. Our hope is in the power of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he alone has the power to do what politicians can never, ever do, what politics can never, ever do. And that is to rescue and transform the heart. For people aren't changed by passing of laws. Yes, people are directed and restrained by the passing of laws, but they are not changed by them. For example, the passing of laws with regard to race did not end racism, which is why even though there were massive civil rights laws passed in America, we still live with individual and corporate and institutionalized racism in America because racism is a hard issue. Now, we should be thankful for those laws, but we've seen the inadequacy of political power to do what actually needs to be done. The gospel of Jesus, friends, is our hope if we want prejudice to be robbed of its power in a human being's life. For it's God's grace that can turn proud people into humble people, and it can turn war makers into peacemakers. It's God's grace that can turn selfish people into selfless, servant-hearted people. And no matter who is in the Oval Office, Jesus, the true king, will still be at work doing what he alone can do. And when we recognize that, it will fill us with hope and it will keep us from putting our hope too strongly in politics, thus taking the edge off of our political talk with one another. Because our ultimate hope is in Jesus, it's not in the policies or the politicians. They matter, but they don't matter as much as him. So friends, may we be shaped by the gospel. For in it we find the resources to enable us to reflect its power and to create unity amongst diversity, even political diversity. For in doing so, we as Midtown Church will stand out like a light in a dark and divided world where Democrats and Republicans and Libertarians, to give them a shout out to, experience true unity and community 
through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. So to conclude, let's all spend time in prayer as we approach this election. And let's all ask God to give us wisdom, know how to vote in a way that will best love and serve our neighbors. And let's be civil and loving as we discuss politics with one another. And then let's cast our ballots with joy and gratitude that our salvation is secure. Christ's supremacy is true and his victory is assured, whatever this election's outcome is. Let's pray, friends. Heavenly Father, I pray that our church truly would reflect the power of the gospel. Yeah, that we would uh, be united in Christ and not demand uniformity from one another, but allow for the diversity that you allow in Christ. That we would love each other as you have loved us. And Lord, that we would reflect to the world what everyone wishes would be true, but we don't know how to make it happen on our own. That is that people from different perspectives and different views and different convictions can still come together and actually have deep relationships and community. Lord Jesus, you died to reconcile us to the Father and to one another. May that truth propel us towards greater unity Enable us towards greater unity. May it shape us as a church to be one that reflects you. God, we do pray for this upcoming election. And we pray your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray that you would help us not put our hope in who's in office, but in you. But God, I pray that you'd also help us know how to love people well by how we vote and by our political engagement. And that we would aim for that because of how you've loved us we must love one another christ name we pray amen thank you for listening to the midtown church sermon podcast we hope this ministry has blessed you if you would like to support this ministry you can donate at midtownaustin.org